Hello and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. In this episode we're going to continue talking about climate change, but there is something that I wanted to talk about which came up from our previous episode, which is a comment from listener Pierre. Um, in our previous episode on climate change, I did talk about the uh, possibility that if uh, emissions continue to rise throughout the 2020s, then I said 1.5 degrees Celsius is impossible and 2 degrees becomes basically impossible. And Pierre pointed out that it, by other analyses, um, you can certainly argue that 1.5 degrees is already basically impossible. Um, it might still just about be geophysically possible, but it requires either large amounts of negative emissions and also um, mitigation rates that most people would certainly see as economically impossible. And that two degrees would be a heroic effort that would require a halving of emissions in this decade. Um, I wanted to say I didn't want to be misleading uh, in sort of casually quoting those figures and implying that 1.5 is any more attainable than it is at the moment. If I'm going to be candid about it, I personally think 1.5 isn't happening and 2 would be a massive stretch from where we are. And I think that's been the situation for a while. So it's certainly fair to say that if we continue to see emissions rising to the middle of this decade, then 2 degrees is going to be very, very difficult to attain. I think one thing that I would sort of throw out there in my defence, those of you who listen to the episode on carbon budgets will know that people argue about what the carbon budget is. If you have negative emissions, you can kind of extend the carbon budget in the other direction, as those who've listened to our series on that on Patreon will know. So it's very, very difficult to ever conclusively say that these targets are out of reach, which indeed is why we call one of these episodes, We'll Always Have Paris. So I think, in my defence, probably the only thing I can say is that in the shorthand that I was talking about... Uh, I think it is I think I would stand by the thrust of what I said, which is that if emissions continue to rise through the next five, six years, and or even if they just stay stable out to twenty thirty, then Paris is of course completely gone. And I think that regardless of your analysis, uh, regardless of how much faith you have in negative emissions, and regardless of your carbon budget, I think that's very much the case. Um, and whether specifically uh, I was precisely right in the analysis of the situation as it stands in 2021. Um, I don't know. People have different scenarios. Um, one in particular was the Grubler et al. 2018 paper that I was thinking of, which shows that you can get to 1.5 uh, without substantial negative emissions, but you really need to cut uh, both emissions and energy demand uh, quite drastically over the next decade. So I realise that's a little bit of a tangent, um, but I just wanted to say that to clarify that um, I wasn't trying to make a definitive statement about how likely I think 1.5 or 2 is, that's sort of a separate topic. But what I'm certainly saying is that Paris is gone if emissions continue to go up throughout the decade, and I think that most people would agree with that, even though there is levels of uncertainty and argumentation about the differences here. Another thing that I wanted to just very quickly mention now that I'm on this tangent is um, the climate commentator Kevin Anderson has put quite well into words something that I've been trying to express um, recently in these episodes. And what he said uh, is words to the effect of, we don't actually have a problem now with climate change denial in most regions. 
Um, most politicians, most corporations, most organisations are indeed paying lip service to the Paris Agreement and the necessity of tackling climate change. But, he says, we have a denial of the amount of mitigation that we need to do, the amount of action we need to take to mitigate climate change. And he says that the problem with this denial is that it's much more pervasive. It's there in the politicians, it's there in some of the academics, it's there in policymakers, it's there in corporations. And of course, Kevin has his own very well publicised points of view on how we need to tackle climate change, which I urge you to read about because he's he's a very good and very stringent and uh, uncompromising voice on that. Um, But I think this is the point. We're not in an era of climate change science denial so much as we are an era of greenwashing and an era of people underestimating how much action we're going to need to take and an era of pledges which aren't necessarily backed up by the science. And as I've tried to talk about in previous episodes, these things, the Paris Agreement, the, uh, the idea of net zero by even 2050 for a developed economy like uh, America or, or the UK, they have inevitable consequences for the actions that you have to be doing now. And you can trace them right back to the sort of levels of things that we need to be seeing now. And I think it's not climate denial to not do these things, but it's certainly mitigation denial and actions that don't line up with your promises. And unfortunately, that is what we're going to be talking about today in the main body of our episode, because another story caught my eye, which was some pretty eye-opening results from one of the world's largest carbon capture and storage projects. So again, listeners to that negative emission series, which will be coming out here in a few weeks, but is on Patreon now, um, will recognise that most mainstream modelling Uh, of the pathways to the Paris Agreement in terms of how we'll get there, the energy system is going to change, Um, they do lean on carbon capture and storage, often scaling up to billions of tonnes of CCS a year by the middle of the century. Now, this tends to occur in these models for three main reasons. The first of these is to mitigate emissions from sectors that are hard to do without emitting CO2, like steel or cement production. Uh, You still burn fossil fuels in these sectors, but you capture the CO2 and bury it to reduce emissions from these sectors. The second reason is that it allows you to have a few fossil fuel power plants or bioenergy power plants in the electricity sector, which would still then be clean because they are burying their resulted emissions, and in the the BEX case, in the bioenergy case, perhaps negative emissions as well, but they also provide baseload for the energy system, and depending on the model that you're doing, uh, that baseload can vary in how important it is. But many of these models do like to have some of that in the system, and this is how it can reduce its emissions. And then the third reason that CCS is used so much is to let you suck CO2 out of the atmosphere towards the end of the century by burning biofuels or using direct air capture technologies. Now that's the main topic of the negative emission series, so I won't dwell on it too much here, but the point is that this both uh, in these models serves to do two things. These negative emissions actually do two things. One is to reverse existing emissions that overshoot expectations. So this is the idea that the whole planet, the whole economy of the planet, will be net negative emitting by the end of the century and will cancel out some of what we're failing to do now. And the other reason you have these negative emissions is to make up for emissions that we can't get rid of from other sectors. So one example of this that I think doesn't necessarily get too much uh, credit is nitrogen uh, dioxide. Um, Nitrogen fertilisers result in greenhouse gas emissions and that is extremely hard to avoid because essentially spreading them on crops is what is allowing us to grow as many crops as we do at the moment. Um, It's hard to avoid those emissions. You could make up for that nitrogen dioxide by taking in some carbon dioxide, but this is going to be an example of a hard-to-mitigate sector, which is relying on some negative emissions or some 
other uh, carbon budgetary somewhere else to make up for the emissions that it can't mitigate by changing its practices as easily. Um, so, you know, that's one example of things that negative emissions are appealed to. And the classic uh, paper on this, uh, which is Glenn Peters, Kevin Anderson, again, uh, The Trouble with Negative Emissions, which you should be able to read uh, on Nature. Um, they certainly did a version of it that doesn't need a paywall. But anyway, um, the classic point of that paper is that negative emissions, the full scale of them is somewhat concealed in these models because they're both used to make the whole world net negative by the end of the century, but also to make up for stuff that they don't envisage being decarbonized in other ways in the meantime. So the scale of these things ends up being pretty big and lots of them depend on carbon capture and storage, specifically the technology that lets you take CO2 in gaseous form, uh, scrub it out of some exhaust somewhere and then liquefy it and bury it underground. So in other words, a huge slice of how we say we're planning to deal with climate change, what the expectations are, uh, depend on CCS being a success. Uh, to the tune of billions of tons of CO2 in many cases. Uh, and we'll discuss at length, it's probably the area where we're furthest off track for all kinds of reasons. Mostly because it's effectively just cleaning up your waste, and unless you make people pay to clean up their waste when they can dump it in the atmosphere for free, they won't do it. I don't necessarily think there are massive technical problems that mean that you can't do this properly and well if you're willing to give it enough money and engineering power and effort and so on. There are examples of successful projects. It's not like all this stuff is just leaking out again. Um, but the projects that have been done have been suboptimal. And it's been promised for a long, long, long time, but hasn't really progressed beyond the stage of these several pilot projects scattered around the globe. So this news story that caught my eye is that probably the largest of these pilot projects has reported its results from the first five years of operation, and they are not impressive. This is the so-called Gorgon project run by Chevron in Australia. So essentially what happened here some years ago was a pilot for clean fossil fuel extraction, supposedly. The deal was that the Australian government would allow Exxon, Shell, Chevron and others to develop this massive new natural gas field on the condition that over the next five years they would use it as a carbon capture pilot project and capture and bury 80% of the CO2 emissions extracted from its reservoir gas over the next five years. Now, it's worth saying that even this target would hardly make it carbon-neutral fossil fuels by any stretch of the imagination. This reservoir gas is CO2 produced when they are extracting the natural gas from the field. But that accounts for just a third of the emissions of the overall project. So the target would be 80% of that third, which amounts to like 20-30% to 30 of the actual emissions that come from the whole life cycle of producing this natural gas. So that is a far cry from the type of... Uh, clean natural gas or clean coal that you might hear people talking about, um, even though it is one of the major CCS projects in the world. But the news from this is that the first five years have elapsed and the Gorgon project has failed pretty badly to get close to its target. Because of delays to the construction, the actual sequestration of CO2 didn't begin until 2019, and as a result of that, they've only managed to capture 30% of what they were supposed to. That's still 5 million tonnes of CO2 which they have successfully liquefied and buried underground, but it is a fraction of their overall target and a tiny fraction of the overall emissions of the project, which cost 3 billion Australian dollars, including 60 million Australian dollars from the government there. Not to provide spoilers for our CCS episodes or anything, but this is always the double-edged sword with CCS. An optimist or an advocate would argue that fossil fuel companies are ideally placed, technically and morally, to make CCS work. 
They're used to building the pipelines, the infrastructure projects, extracting things from underground. They've got the ideas, they've got the engineers, they've got the capacity to do this. They have many of the appropriate sites developed because you would inject CO2 in a lot of cases in like disused wells and stuff like that. And they have the capital for doing these big infrastructure projects. So injecting that liquefied CO2 underground should be within their ability. And it makes more sense to compel them to do it than it does to set up some separate agencies to do it. Morally, we want the polluters to pay. In this ideal system, they would pay to clean up their waste, and perhaps the price of fossil fuels would no longer include the generous subsidy it gets from allowing their use to wreck the climate and use the atmosphere as a toilet. So that is the optimist's view for the role of CCS in tackling climate change. Then the cynic says that CCS has essentially, because it's been promised so often and hardly ever materialised, it allows the industry to justify its continued existence by painting a future where we can still use fossil fuels without making the earth uninhabitable with the promise of CCS. This lets them create new developments with the promise that there'll be greener, clean coal or clean gas or whatever, and sometimes even to get extra money or permits from the government that they wouldn't otherwise have got. While ultimately, their objective isn't really to deploy CCS everywhere. That would crush their businesses in the face of clean competitors because it would cost them more to do it. But they just want to use it as a fig leaf to take the pressure off. This, the cynics would say, is why the technology never seems to develop beyond these pilot projects, which always start with a great deal of hype, but end up overrunning massively on cost, delaying operations substantially often, and hugely underperforming on their targets. And again, I think this is just part of, you know, we talked about this in earlier thermonuclear takes episodes, just because you can envision a technological future. We have too much faith in technology. We also have too much faith in nature to do things at the scales that are required and you constantly kind of need to reground yourself in the mathematics here. Um, Ketan Joshi, who we've talked about on this show before in relation to his work on Bitcoin's energy emissions, um, he constantly shows this graph, which is, you know, the amount of carbon that's been emitted and the amount that's been captured by CCS. And the amount that's been captured by CCS is basically always a flat line along the bottom of the graph, while the amount of CO2 actually emitted uh, zooms up into the exponential stratosphere. So the point is your plan has to add up. The late, great David Mackay said that in his book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. You've got to have a plan that adds up. That was 2007, 2008. And we're continually seeing plans where the mathematics just doesn't work out. There was another controversy on this recently in the UK where one of the uh, advisors for the forthcoming climate conference talked about doing these tiny, like, symbolic steps of, oh, don't use plastic bags, you know, don't, don't, don't rinse your uh, your washing before it goes through the washing machine and it reminded me of his famous saying which was um if everybody only does a little we only achieve a little and <laughs> that's what you have to think to these sort of gesture actions i think people are starting to see through them now and saying you know clearly this is a much much larger problem than we're going to be able to solve by going around and turning all the lights off although of course you should try to live as efficiently as you can but the idea that that's sufficient, it's woefully inadequate, it doesn't add up to what's needed. So returning to this concept of the optimists versus the cynics on CCS, I think it's getting harder and harder to say that the jury is still out on how viable this is, because we've got these stories from the Gorgon project, we have the Boundary Dam project that we discussed in the CCS episodes. All of the practical stories of this thing being deployed, I'm afraid, are giving points for the cynics in this argument. And again, I don't doubt that large-scale CCS is technically feasible. Millions of tonnes a year have been achieved by this project. That's not to be sniffed at. 
if we had thousands of sites like that, we would get up to the billions of tons a year that are envisaged in these projects. But we need thousands of these facilities to be built over the next few decades to scale up CCS to the level that's imagined in these energy system transition models. And we need the ones that operate to be more efficient. Otherwise, there's going to be so much residual emissions from what's going on that it's, it's not going to achieve what it's supposed to in terms of actually mitigating CO2. And every year and every month that we delay this rapid decarbonisation, electrification and the phase out of the use of fossil fuels means that we need to build even more of these things. And that, quite simply, is way off track from happening at the moment. And the bad news from the few pilot projects there are doesn't seem to make it any more viable. If I'm going to be diplomatic about where CCS is, I think we have to say that if you think CCS is going to play a major role in decarbonisation, the time for this piecemeal voluntary stuff, a fossil fuel company investing in a pilot project in exchange for a permit here, a government-funded competition or project there which might get its funding withdrawn at some point, this piecemeal pilot project stuff, it's got to be, the time for that is over. If this is going to work, and many of the models can't add up without it, then we have to mandate the fossil fuel companies to deploy it and make it a condition of doing business, with extremely stringent penalties if the projects fail, like this one seems to have done. Now, apparently Chevron will indeed face financial penalties and some vague requirement to offset their extra emissions that go above the project limit. That at least is something. But if CCS is really going to play a part here, it's time to get very serious about deploying it. This stuff has been promised for decades, and it is failing to deliver on those promises. And if it continues to be the case that this stuff fails to deliver on its promises, and the scale-up that's envisioned in these models seems to be not materialising, then we have to face what decarbonisation looks like if we can't resort to CCS. And that is going to be very different. It's going to require lots of different approaches. Um, much more electrification, a much more rapid phase-out of fossil fuel use, and much more on the demand side as well for energy and electricity. And again, we can't use these continued techno-fantasies of this stuff materialising if it really seems unfeasible to get it to work um, to justify continued delays to considering that sort of action. And uh, I, I, I think Kevin Anderson is on point when he says there's mitigation denial here, because the idea that uh, we go through decarbonisation without much CCS makes a completely different set of assumptions as to what you're going to have to do to be within climate change limits. Now, of course, the thing that's dangling over the head of this is the potential of missing Paris and the perhaps likelihood that that is now what will happen. It would be remiss of me not to say that when I was writing this script, I was in a house in Britain not designed for heatwaves, directing several different fans at my face and drinking basically pure ice, reading about the wildfires in Canada, the flooding in Europe, which has claimed likely hundreds of lives now, the North American heatwave in the Pacific Northwest in Canada that's claimed hundreds of lives, the flooding in Henan province in China where they saw a year's worth of rainfall in three days, uh, that yes, of course, we are seeing the effects of climate change this summer, as we are increasingly likely to see them with every passing summer. As my old professor used to say, the climate is what changes, but the weather is what gets you. Now, I don't want to analyse any of these individual events in massively great detail, other than to extend condolences to anyone who has been affected by them. But there are a few general points about climate change that this makes me think of, as I see yet another Northern Hemisphere summer bringing these renewed extreme events and the discourse that surrounds them every time. 
Of course, we need to point out first the fact that for many people, particularly those who live closer to nature, who are involved in agriculture, who live in poorer countries, this is obviously stuff that's happening all the time and having much more devastating effects. But of course, it just gets on the news when it happens to Europeans or folks in North America for reasons that I'm sure I need not explain to the audience. Firstly, you will hear people saying that this is a once-in-a-century event or equivalent. I dislike this framing on a number of levels. First, it's not clear. Are we talking about once-in-a-century under a changed climate, or what we might expect to be once-in-a-century under a pre-industrial climate? Plenty of events that were once-once-in-a-century events are no longer. We are shifting that distribution in terms of temperature, precipitation, towards the right of the graph. Stuff is getting more extreme, and extremes more frequent. According to the UN 2019 Special Report on the Oceans, for example, by 2050, even under our aggressive mitigation scenarios where we cut emissions rapidly, due to sea level rise, many coastal megacities and small island nations are going to experience once-in-a-century events once every year. That's where we're headed already, regardless of what we do. The sea level rise is the one thing where there are pretty lengthy timescales for this stuff to actually kind of percolate into the oceans. Um, One way of thinking about the oceans in a climate point of view is a little bit as they operate if you've ever lived on the coast and you know that the ocean is warmer at night, it prevents the nights from cooling down quite as much, and it's also cooler during the day, um, so it gives you that nice cold sea breeze, which means that you never quite get up to the temperatures that we have to suffer inland in lots of cases. Um, And yeah, there are big inertial mass, right, that responds on timescales that are slower than the atmosphere responds which means that the oceans are currently integrating the effects of the warming that we've had already on the surface, and that's giving you the thermal volumetric expansion of the oceans. Uh, It's also giving you the gradual ice melt. So if all emissions stopped tomorrow, uh, the oceans would continue to expand, uh, the sea level would continue to rise, and the ice would continue to melt for many decades, uh, probably up to the end of the century. I'm just throwing that offhand. But The point is that that sea level rise is locked in. That's the one thing that is locked in by our current activities already. Um, Of course, it gets much worse if we emit more and get up to higher temperatures. And the ice sheets are another area where there are probably temperature thresholds um, above which the ice sheets will not recover and below which they can recover. So again, that is another area where uh, tipping points and thresholds may indeed be quite relevant to the underlying physics of the ice sheets. But the point remains that that sea level rise that the 2019 report describes is locked in. And so these coastal big cities, small island nations, their once in a century is going to be once a year. That's where we're going to be headed already by the centre of the century. And that happens pretty much regardless of what we do now. And unfortunately, it goes without saying that in such a climate, the new once in a century events, and let's face it, there's always a once in a century event happening somewhere. Those new events will be like nothing we've ever seen before. Some of the events we've already witnessed are no longer in the category of this would have happened once in a century without global warming, but now it's once in a decade. They are instead in the category of this could not have occurred without anthropogenic climate change. You know, you can run the models thousands of times. This is typically what attribution studies do. They will run the models in a pre-industrial climate. They will run the models in a change climate. And sometimes they'll say, well, this type of event used to happen once in a thousand in pre-industrial, now it's once in a hundred. But we're also seeing events that just never happen in the pre-industrial and can only happen under the circumstances of a changed climate. So once again, seeing how woolly people are in linking these events to climate change, when 
it is impossible that any weather event is happening that's not at least influenced by climate change. And for some of them, we have very good evidence that they are caused entirely by climate change. I find that to be quite depressing. I think there's a certain reticence um, to talk about causation amongst scientists, which is understandable, because you can never rule out what would have happened uh, without climate change. But at the same time, it does remind me of that scene in The Simpsons, which some of you will remember, where uh, Hank Scorpio blows up a bridge, right? And uh, the UN is there talking about it. And um, one of the guys is like, maybe it just collapsed on its own? (laughs) We can't take that chance. Mm, You always say that. I want to take a chance. Well, I don't think we can take the chance that these things are just collapsing on their own. I think we are beyond that now. And again, to call that stuff once-in-a-century event, I feel lets us and the people responsible for planning these kind of things off the hook. It's a freak event. It will never happen again. I mean, remember when we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic the same way, as if it were impossible to anticipate, as if the warnings weren't there. But those of you who listen to this show will know that (laughs) the warnings were there for many years beforehand, um... Many of them were just saying there's going to be another major pandemic at some point. Some of them were very specific to the problems of bat coronaviruses in that area of China. You know, um, Those events were precedented. We had warning shots of SARS, MERS, um, and you know, it, it's not necessarily a huge shock that these things pan out the way they do. I think that's why I don't like once-in-a-century event, because... It's not impossible to anticipate. It lets you off the hook. And the thing that it lets us off the hook for is that our fail to adapt to climate change, really. The climate change that we should, at this point, be anticipating. Now, the second point, and I know you know all this already, but it feels so important to reiterate it when you're discussing climate change with people, is to point out that it is a cumulative problem. If we zero out emissions tomorrow, which is impossible, but imagine it, then we're left with a climate that is more or less exactly like this especially if the masking effect from aerosols cancels out the short-term climate pollutants, but that's getting in the weeds a bit. The point is the global mean temperature would settle where it is now, about 1.1 to 1.3 degrees above the pre-industrial. The climate and the distribution of extreme weather events is here to stay, likely for centuries, unless we geoengineer to suck masses of CO2 out of the atmosphere or partially block out the sun. So every year, every tonne of carbon that we continue to emit is only making it worse. The cumulative nature of the problem is so important to stress because I wonder how many people and people in charge really get it at this point. Like, I wonder if you actually ask people about this, uh, what they would expect to happen if we zeroed out our emissions tomorrow. Do they think the climate will go back to normal or, or not? Is this understood, this stock and flow problem? If you think climate change is looking bad now, it's never going to be better than this. And of course, it has the potential to get much worse. This type of extreme event is not obviously going to happen in these regions every single year from now on, but the overall distribution of them is not getting any better. A 1.5 degrees climate will be prone to more extreme heat waves and extreme events and so on than today's climate is, and that's really the best we can possibly hope for. And there's the huge amount of inertia in these systems as we decarbonise, which will take us to higher temperatures. I don't say all of this to unnecessarily depress everyone, but simply as a reminder of the importance of adaptation, you can't be planning for these once-in-a-century events to continue to be once-in-a-century. Now, there is a classic adage in climate circles which says we should plan our mitigation to target two degrees of the Paris Agreement 
and plan our adaptation for four degrees. After all, the prudent thing to do is to plan for the worst-case scenario where mitigation does not succeed. We talked earlier about some of the reasons why it might not succeed. But you can question how possible it will be to adapt to such changes in the climate and the extreme weather events that they will bring. Can we really plan for some of the world's largest tropical cities becoming effectively uninhabitable outdoors during the summer? Do many of these nations have the resources to adapt even if they wanted to? How viable is it going to be to build some of the protections that some of the most vulnerable regions would need to continue to be inhabited over the course of climate change? And at what point are you getting away from adaptation uh, in terms of building defences to allow people to cope with things and towards a much more extreme adaptation? The point I'm making is that adaptation is not a catch-all. You can't just sprinkle some adaptation dust over this stuff and the problem goes away. Nor will our ability to adapt to some changes that we can anticipate prevent a lot of loss and damage in terms of lives and livelihoods. But we know that the more successful mitigation is, the easier it will be to adapt. And we also know that there is a lot we can and must do in terms of adaptation, readiness and preparedness that isn't taking place right now. But the reality is that I think on that adaptation, most governments are inadequate and still missing the message. And it's not an either-or. Investing in solar panels, wind farms, electric cars and so on is not going to solve the problem of having to adapt because we still have to adapt. We simultaneously have to prepare resilient infrastructures for things like food, water, flood defences, heatwave defences and so on for a warmer world. We know that doing so, by all analyses, is going to be an incredible investment that will save a lot of money and much more importantly, many, many lives compared to the alternative. But we are falling short of that. Globally, the pledge made in 2009 to provide $100 billion worth of financing to developing countries annually from public and private sources in developed nations, that's still not been met. That's a pledge that was made over 10 years ago. Now, this might sound like a lot of money, but when you consider that this finance can be for anything, both adaptation and mitigation, so e.g. renewable energy projects, I think of some of money equivalent to what SoftBank will gamble with to face the greatest ongoing crisis of our times is not particularly impressive and we haven't met that yet. What's more, even though this headline commitment may sound generous, as ever, there's strings attached. A lot of that climate finance is in the form of loans. Oxfam analysed the latest climate finance figures from 2017-18. Developed countries reported delivering $59.5 billion in climate finance. Now that was 33% more than the previous year. But in total, rich countries gave just $12.5 billion in the form of grants, $22 billion in loans with better than market rates and around $24 billion in loans with standard market rates. Interest charges and payments to creditors were not deducted from donor countries' climate finance figures. It's worth noting a grim irony that according to recent calculations, the 77 poorest nations in the world were required to pay back $61 billion in the form of interest and principal on loans to public and private funders in wealthy nations. So the size of the climate finance that is actually grants and not just more loans is being dwarfed by the various loan repayments that are going the other way from the poor world to the rich world. And those of you who have listened to our episodes on Jason Hickel's The Divide, which again are on Patreon but coming out of the paywall soon, will know that this is the case where typically a lot of the things that are called aid are dwarfed by the various financial transactions in one way or another that are going the other way. But it's not just in impoverished countries where climate change adaptation is falling far behind. The same is clearly true of wealthy nations as well. I know I focus a lot on the UK in this sort of analysis, but that's where I live. And to be honest, the analysis from the Committee on Climate Change 
could be repeated for a great many countries. Here's what they had to say in their progress reports on adaptation and mitigation to Parliament in June. They said, quote, The government has made historic climate promises in the past year for which it deserves credit. However, it has been too slow to follow these with delivery. This defining year for the UK's climate credentials has been marred by uncertainty and delay to a host of new climate strategies. Those that have emerged have too often missed the mark. With every month of inaction, it is harder for the UK to get on track. The public has not been informed or engaged in the changes that must lie ahead. In two progress reports published today, the committee offers its appraisal of progress on the twin climate challenges, cutting emissions to net zero and adapting to the climate risks facing the UK. We draw on the committee's comprehensive analysis of the UK's sixth carbon budget and our recent third climate change risk assessment to present more than 200 climate policy recommendations covering every part of government. The opportunity to implement them is there if the government moves decisively. Lord Devon, chair of the Committee on Climate Change, said that we are in the decisive decade for tackling climate change. He said the government must get real on delivery. Global Britain has to prove that it can lead to global change in how we treat our planet. Get it right and UK action will echo widely. Continue to be slow and timid and the opportunity will slip from our hands. Between now and COP26, the world will look for delivery, not promises. Baroness Brown, the chair of the Adaptation Committee, said, The UK is leading in diagnosis but lagging in policy and action. This cannot be put off further. We cannot deliver net zero without serious action on adaptation. We need action now, followed by a national adaptation programme that must be more ambitious, more comprehensive and better focused on implementation than its predecessors to improve national resilience to climate change. Specifically on adaptation, they had this to say. Progress in adapting to climate change is not keeping up with the increasing risks facing the country. Only five of 34 sectors assessed by the CCC have shown notable progress in the past two years, and no sector is yet scoring highly in lowering its level of risk. The National Adaptation Programme for England has not developed national preparedness for even a two degrees rise in global temperature, let alone the high levels of warming that are possible by the end of the century. Now, they provide 50 recommendations, which include restoring 100% of upland peat by 2045, bringing forward proposed bans to address overheating risk in homes through building regulations, making the government's next round of the adaptation reporting mandatory for all infrastructure sectors, building a strong emergency resilience capability for the UK against climate shocks, learning from the COVID-19 response, and implementing a public engagement programme on climate change adaptation so the public knows what's going to happen and what's going to be required of them. So again, you can see that this is just one of these things. The, the Committee on Climate Change is an independent sort of arm's length body from the government. They're not activists. Uh, they are analysts who are employed under the terms of UK legislation to feedback on the government's efforts to combat climate change. So this is not like a, a massive green group that is always going to criticise the government. This is the group that represents mainstream thinking. And this is what they are saying. And what they're saying is that the effort for adaptation is very inadequate at the moment and in extremely fledgling stages in a lot of different cases. Now, I was tempted here to also talk about the draft report from the IPCC, which has recently leaked, but I think that will require its own episode, um, maybe when the report genuinely does come out. But suffice it to say, that's hardly contributing to any sense of sunny optimism about where we are at the moment on climate change. Now, we've talked a lot about inertia on our episodes on mitigation, how even if you have a target date of 2050 that might seem a long way off for all vehicles to be electric, all homes to be zero carbon, boilers to be replaced by electric alternatives, you need to act now to hugely scale up the production of all these things so they have a prayer of being ready in time for when they're needed. Indeed, we've seen with the recent Green Homes Grant in the UK, which was partially hampered by a lack of trained installers, 
that, surprise, surprise, it requires a coherent and joined-up term strategy, the long-term strategy, isn't just flinging money at a problem, but involves training people to have the skills necessary to deal with the problem as well. Even as I was making the final edit on this, my eye was caught by another story from the UK, which is that there's now increasing pressure on ministers to push the date where we phase out gas boilers further backwards. In now, I can certainly see the necessity for setting a timeline for banning these things. I think it's too late to wait for people to voluntarily switch. But the industry and other parties are working backwards and saying that it implies the transition will have to be too fast. So they're basically saying that the inertia in domestic heating is already so high in the UK that they don't think they can decarbonise it in time to hit what's being calculated as necessary for net zero. Every moment of delay pushes that timeline further into the future, and it means more and more stranded assets. People installing boilers that will have to be removed, factories buying equipment that will not be used for its full lifespan, even people training to use and maintain equipment that, at least in theory, is not going to be around in a few decades. Those stranded assets mean pain and cost to many people. And again, many other countries are behind the UK on this as well. And this is of course going to be a problem with adaptation to climate change as well. How many homes are being built on places that aren't going to be viable to live in in a few years' time? The emergency protocols, the seawalls, the unsafe buildings not designed to handle high temperatures or high rainfalls, the way our cities are being designed and maintained, the practices, and perhaps even the species used in agriculture in different regions. All of these things have loads amounts of inertia to them, you can't just change them overnight, which is why the lack of coherent planning on how they're going to be adapted to the future, that we already know is coming, is, is worse, is, is bad. And for every unsafe building that is built, you know, there's going to have to be either that building will have to be abandoned or it will have to be retrofitted at greater expense than if we planned it in advance, or people are going to suffer the consequences. It's as simple as that. Some countries have already made good strides towards better preparedness in light of what is coming. And it is possible to do, even in nations that aren't that wealthy. Bangladesh is an example of a country that is going to suffer tremendously under climate change but has already managed through various different implementations of its safety protocols to reduce the fatalities, if not the property damage, from its frequent and intense flooding. In light of all that we need to do, I have to say, seeing how distracted we are by a lot of irrelevant nonsense at this point in time is very depressing, as is the lack of public engagement. And I, I want to strike a slightly more optimistic tone here, because we're talking about a transformation of society that is both necessary and has the potential to be extremely positive for lots of people. I know there will be many of you listening to this who are keen to do whatever you can to help reduce the risks and damages that are coming our way from climate change, and to rebuild civilization on a footing that we can actually sustain. The antidote to the despair that this can often cause is working together on things that will actually make a positive and practical difference, thinking about different, more sustainable futures that we can live in together. But this is made much more difficult to do by the apparent lack of focus on this issue and the practicalities of what needs to be done to deal with it. The pandemic, for all it's affected us, should make it obvious how much disruption you can avoid if you have some level of prior planning and willingness to heed the warnings from scientists in place, and also the levels of innovation and coordination that we can, in fact, still achieve together as a society when it's deemed necessary, when everyone is working towards the same goal. But I wonder how often you're seeing this treated as a news story with the severity, seriousness, but above all, explicative power that it deserves. And perhaps more importantly, with any means or mechanism attached to helping you direct your efforts towards something that is going to make a practical difference. As I write this, as is usually the case, I can go to any news outlet 
and I will get one of two things. I will either scroll through their entire front page without a single mention of what's going on, but or when you do get mention of it, usually in papers of a certain political bent, shall we say, it's just a, expressed as a grim portent, a disaster, a, a warning of impending collapse that doesn't give you any possibility, any practical action that you can take to positively impact the situation. And I think the problem with that is the only response people have to stuff like that is to go full ostrich. They don't want to read it, they don't want to think about it, and it's really hard to blame people for that. You've got enough stress in your lives without trying to take on your shoulders, uh, seemingly single-handedly, this endless uh, grim portent of doom that continues to be uh, rumbling away in the background of how we live all of our lives. Um, I think this is precisely why this public engagement, actually talking about it, actually talking about the climate crisis, what we can do, what needs to happen, what needs to change, these things, treating it as a problem that we were actually trying to collectively solve rather than just some looming disaster that is inevitable and that we continue to hear ever more stark warnings about, that would be nice to see. And in part, this is down to the news media, I think, for treating this subject with a little bit more seriousness and a little bit more, you know, explicative towards people of what they can and should be doing. You know, you almost think in wartime, there would be constant drives for people to do stuff that felt like it would help. Similarly, during the pandemic, there was similar stuff. But with this, we just seem to see, oh, scientists continue to warn of ongoing impending disaster. We're all doomed, etc. And you think, well, where are people supposed to go from that? Now, I'm sure there will be those of you listening who have your own opinions as to why this is the only nature of the coverage that can be provided. Um, that's another topic. I, this is going on a bit long, so we'll probably get into that some other time. But um, you can call me impossibly naive, but it kind of just depresses me that we have managed to configure society in such a way that there are millions of talented people doing things that they consider meaningless. Um, there are many practical cataclysms that we have the potential and the tools and the understanding to head off. Uh, there are many problems that exist in the world which we could be working to make better. And a complete lack of willingness on the part of many of our leaders to actually be bold enough to do what's required, beyond paying enough lip service to the concerns of the public or the shareholders to survive the next election or board meeting. There is a deep frustration that we have so much potential still to bend that trajectory away from four degrees or three degrees and towards bad but survivable and manageable outcomes of 1.5 and 2. And at the moment, beyond the pledges, we're not seeing that action sufficiently coordinated. And yet it feels to me that there are so many of us who could be lifted from the despair and purposelessness that characterises modern life for a lot of people, and into some things that we actively and actually knew would help in the struggle for, well, our species, our only home, and the world around us, the natural world around us, that we have done so much to plunder in the last few centuries. So I want to be hopeful, but there are times, watching the Titanic ploughing endlessly on in the same direction, when the pessimism wins out, and I think, sadly, this episode is probably one of those times. I didn't want to end it there, though, for risk of you all going, oh dear, so I thought there'd be something quite different to the sort of set of recommendations that is often made here about writing to politicians and doing what you can in your own life to switch away from fossil fuel power sources and towards other things. Um, I wanted to recommend the Gen Dread newsletter, that's G-E-N Dread uh, and blog by Britt Ray. Some of you will remember we interviewed her several years ago about de-extinction 
Um, since then, she's become increasingly active in the growing space of climate and eco-anxiety, and in essence, examining and studying our psychological response to climate change, which is important because human society <laughs> is not not influenced by human psychology, and this is one of the major blocks and barriers, I think, to us actually dealing with this problem today. Uh, we're hopefully going to interview her again soon when her book on this subject is coming out. But the blog itself is interesting. It contains an excellent mix of practical tips for identifying what you can do to help, and also how to handle feeling overwhelmed by bad news when it comes to climate change, which means I should probably head off and read it myself, frankly. Thank you all for your continued patience with and support of the show, particularly when I'm very busy and struggling to write as much as I would like to. Hopefully in a few months things will ease off a bit and I'll be back in the saddle producing the ends to series that you've heard and more stuff for you. Please in the meantime though, you can support the show in many ways. Thank you for those of you who have engaged with us in social media and sent emails, I always enjoy getting those. If you like the show, if you think it's valuable, tell others to listen, that's very important, and send any feedback, comments, concerns, etc., via the contact form on the website. You'll find other ways to support the show there as well. There's the PayPal, there's the Patreon. You know these things by now if you're a regular listener. Those are ways that you can help us keep going. Thank you very, very much for listening. Until next time then, please do take care.